Hello, everyone. Uh, Aaron Stewart from the Little Black Couch going live a little earlier than I normally do. But I've got uh, just kind of a cool story that popped in my head and been thinking about it a little bit over the course of uh, the last couple days. Um, I just finished reading a book, Extreme Ownership, uh, which was interesting. It uh, Essentially, it was lessons learned from some Navy SEALs on how to be better managers. And as I am an organizational management geek, I, I wanted to read through it. We actually got that uh, sent to us from one of our coaching programs. And it was a, it's an easy read. It's a quick read. Uh, you can get through it pretty fast. The concepts aren't really all that in-depth. And nothing really shocking or surprising. If you've read a lot of organizational management or business or entrepreneurship books in the past, it's right along those lines. The part that's really cool is they're Navy SEALs, for heaven's sakes, you know. And so some of the management styles that they utilized, I was actually pretty surprised at how, uh, um, I have this image of Navy SEALs in my mind where, you know, they're so precise and they're so full of precision that they never make any sort of mistakes. And, and yet they do, and they, were, they freely discussed them. So it was pretty uh, interesting stuff, but it was in the midst of reading about them and their management style and everything that they faced. I mean, they're under extreme duress, and they're still trying to manage this group of people and how you have to stay calm in doing all that. And that caused, kind of sent me down this little path thinking about it. And so I, that's the topic that I want to discuss on today, is making sure that we have all the data to make the very best decisions for our business. So let's have a little chat from the Little Black Couch about such a topic. Here we go. Welcome back. Thanks for being back. Yeah, so this was kind of a, again, a good read. It kind of reminded me of a few experiences I've had over the years, and especially one back in my corporate days, early on when I was working as a international marketing director for the American Gilsonite Company, which was at uh, one time a subsidiary of Chevron. It's now an independent uh, company all on their own. They used to have their headquarters up in Salt Lake City. I believe they're now in San Francisco. Um, but anyway, so that the situation that I was thinking about and, and how it works into entrepreneurship is kind of how I wanted to address this. I learned a really valuable lesson going through this as a corporate person, but it was one that I have been able to apply many times since as an entrepreneur. So that's, this, that's where we're gonna go real quick. Let's check in. I wanna make sure that, that I don't forget to do this. Let's check in with our friend Buddy. And he, there is, there he is, he's looking good. Um, he's holding my backpack today for me, so I appreciate that. Oh, Buddy. Yeah, so, thanks a lot. But So Buddy's sort of uh, 
Yeah, that's the that's the Japan flag. Oh dear. Well, so Buddy sort of ruined the surprise for me. Thanks a lot, man. But anyway, yes, this story that I want to share today and, and the lessons learned actually does, it did occur in Japan. And so I, I was working for American Gilsonite Company. I was the international marketing director. I th I've mentioned this before. I had to travel quite a bit. I would go out sometimes for four and six weeks at a time. We had 56 distributors and it was kind of our goal to visit half of those distributors every single year. And some of our big distributors we met with multiple times per year. So I wasn't necessarily getting out, um, I was probably getting out and visiting about, you know, between 25 and 30 companies or countries and distributors a year. And you'd go out for four to six weeks and then you'd come home for four to six weeks and then go back out and it was just kind of in and out, in and out. And so you're living out of a suitcase, usually spending three days roughly per country and then moving on to the next one, unless you had a lot of, in some of our countries where we had huge distributors with a lot of clients, we'd have to spend more time than that. And as the case may be, in, in Japan, we had a huge distributor there and we did a lot of business in Japan. And Japan is a super interesting country. Uh, the culture, I love, I love Japan. I actually uh, served a church mission in Japan, so I speak Japanese. I love the culture. I, uh, I came home and studied Japanese in college. I studied business Japanese at Thunderbird. So I just, and, and the culture, the whole thing. I just love it. I love everything about Japanese history courses, fascinated by the whole thing, um, and their cuisine. I love it in Japan. I don't like it here. Sushi is gross in the United States. So any of you that love it, knock yourselves out, but it's way better in Japan. So, okay. All that being said, so I, I was hired by this group to be the international marketing director, but my boss, who is VP of marketing, he had this sort of weird relationship with the Japanese distributor. And so he would go over and visit them and they would, um, you know, they spoke decent English, not great, but they would always speak in Japanese when he was in the room. And he had this feeling that they were being dishonest, that somehow or another they were cheating uh, AGC, American Gilsonite Company, out of some partnerships or some business or whatever, but he just, he didn't trust them and he had no other, just his gut. He just did not trust what they were doing. So when I came in and interviewed for the job and he found out that I spoke Japanese, unbeknownst to me, he decided that this would be a good fit because I could go in and um, help him understand what's going on in Japan. And so when I was hired, one of our first trips was to go over there. And so the first few trips, he actually went with me and introduced me to the distributors. And, and I, he, he loved to travel and he loved that uh, per diem where he could drink a lot of wine on the company, on the company dole, right? So, so we, we traveled a little bit and um, we went and met this distributor. And on the plane ride over, he told me of his great grandiose plan. And that was that I was not supposed to speak any Japanese, nor lead on that I knew how to speak Japanese or understood it or could read it or anything. That I was just supposed to be the, the uh, a stupid American that has no idea how to speak anything, who's you know a, a new graduate from business school and you know total doomkopf. Thank you, uh, Germany. So uh, just play dumb, right? And. 
it, you know, it's dishonest, right? I wasn't really thrilled with it, but I was also following what um, my, my boss uh, had asked me to do. So I was like, reluctantly, I said, okay. So we went in and we met with the distributors. I played stupid. I, it was harder than you think, you know, to pretend like you have no idea what they're saying. It really took me a bit to kind of get into that mode. But uh, fortunately for everybody, I play stupid really well. It comes so naturally to me, playing stupid. So anyway, I, I played dumb. I, I didn't understand anything. And then after our meetings, he would say, okay, what did they say? And I would repeat back to him. But there was nothing going on. These distributors were just straight up, honest people, hardworking, but he could not, he could not let that go. And so here we are in every meeting, I'm playing dumb and, there, and there's, there's questions being asked and then being translated and given to us. And then we're providing answers that I know aren't right because the translation wasn't completely accurate. And I was having such a hard time, silence, I was having such a hard time with this. It was brutal. So we spent like 10 days there. Um, the, the, the Japanese distributors took to me as the stupid American who does, doesn't know anything, who has never traveled internationally, none of this stuff. And um, I was so worried that we'd bump into somebody that I happened to know and, and it would be, you know, over. But fortunately, it's a very populated country and we didn't run into anybody I knew and, and our dirty little secret was safe with us. And so this continued on and they, they were trying to teach me Japanese which was they asked me if I was interested in learning Japanese. And so I said, yeah, I would love to learn Japanese. And so they started teaching me little phrases and words and things, and then were just flabbergasted that I could remember them two, three hours later. So they taught me how to introduce myself in Japanese. And then the next uh, distributor we went to, I introduced myself in Japanese and they were just like, he is a savant. He is an idiot savant. He's stupid at everything else, but for Japanese, for whatever reason, he's, he's pretty good at this. So we went about that little game for the 10 days and went home. And I, I just said, look, they, they are straight on the up and up. Everything that they said, they tried to communicate as best they could in what, what their, their English skills, but there is nothing, nothing going on, I promise you. And to this, he was like, yeah, I don't believe you. <clears throat> so for the next two years, I continued to go to Japan and miraculously became very good at Japanese because I was studying back in the United States. <clears throat> Eventually, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> let's see, little water. Better, okay. Eventually, I was fluent, right? After two years, I could go and speak with them and they took full credit for teaching me Japanese. They gave me books on Japanese. They sh showed me all kinds of stuff. They took me out to really cool places to eat. It was awesome, but it was a total farce. And they made special trips for me to go over there to spy on these distributors because they still couldn't believe that the Japanese were, um, that there was this many problems. And a lot of the problems had to do with, they, they said that the customers would come back and say that the product wasn't packaged effectively, that it got there broken. And so they are always asking for credits on their account. And so I was taken to all these different customers and they would literally back it up and say, look, yeah, here's the broken bags and whatever. And the, and the Japanese are just very particular in what's delivered to them. If they order something, they expect it to come in that order. And we sometimes as Americans and, and 
I don't, this is a, maybe a generalization, but it, it holds true that we, we Americans maybe don't expect as high a quality as the Japanese do, and that's just the way it is. I, I don't know how else to put it. But we, we are able to accept lesser quality without throwing a big stink fit, and the Japanese will just, they will throw a stink fit. It has to be perfect. And that's just their culture. And so everybody is, and it, it makes the culture a super high pressure society. Suicide's high over there. Ugh, it's, it's a tough deal, but it's kind of nice because the place is always clean and everything's usually in really great condition. You know, even the public services and all that. So, um, but that was the situation that we were in. And I, I just, year after year, month after up, trip after trip after trip, I kept coming back to tell my boss, there's nothing here. And yet he still couldn't get his head around it. Well, what did that cause for us? We made so many bad decisions and, and hurt that relationship so badly that they started to distrust us. Like they would ask for returns and credits and then we would, you know, we'd slowly, we'd slow walk that back. And so the business became somewhat strained. And so when I would go over there, I was constantly apologizing for the way we were treating them and telling them I'm very sorry um, and, you know, falling on my sword. But it was a situation where I looked really, really bad. It didn't matter how, you know, how well I was speaking Japanese based on their exceptional instruction. It, it, it just got to be a very ugly situation because we were reacting to what we thought was going on and not what was actually going on. The, the data that we were accepting wasn't accurate and it had been going on for so long that even when I started to get them to believe that that was the situation, that it was accurate, they, the bad blood had already sort of begot, had, had already gotten into place and it was very hard to overcome that. I think that we made great strides in doing that, but it became a very strained relationship. And what I learned from that experience was that we need to have, in order for us to make the best possible decisions, we need to have accurate data. We have to know, and we cannot make these huge assumptions and then try to run our business off of that. Sometimes we have to, sometimes we have to get out and get going, but I've learned over time that a lot of, a lot of um, situations come up where you feel like you have to react quickly, and if you don't, you're gonna miss out on opportunity. And those situations usually are far better off if you're able to step back for a little bit, take a few, few breaths, think about it, look over everything, and then, and then always take a long view. And had we in uh, American Gilsonite Company said, okay, look, what could happen if we are wrong? And if they are not um, doing these things that we think they are, what could happen to the relationship? We could have easily predicted that that relationship would sour and that business would be hurt by it. Had we taken a longer view, say, okay, this, this is the possible effect, this is the possible outcome of this action that we're taking, this decision that we're making on how to treat them. And then we could have adjusted that, say, is that good for our business? No, it's not good for our business. Let's make sure that before we make these accusations and assumptions, let's make sure that the data is accurate. And we could have handled that much better. It would have been far better. This was, this was a super good partnership. They were helping us in Japan. Then they started helping us in Korea. And they were willing to help us in, in China, which was a really, really tough country. And they had made some great inroads. They were a big, huge sales firm. They made some wonderful inroads into China, but they just weren't willing to risk that with us because the relationship was so strained. So we missed out on some huge opportunities because we made some assumptions on really bad data.
So when you get into this, as, as an entrepreneur, yes, we wear a lot of hats and we have to make a lot of pretty tough decisions, whether it's on pricing, whether it's on vendors, whether it's on um, you know, re, you know, our, our return policy, all of that. We have to make some really big decisions. But it's so important to make sure that when we're making these decisions, that we take a long view. What do we want out of the relationship? What do we want out of sales? And not to make these short-term knee-jerk reactions because we feel a little pressure to react. Um, short-term, short, I mean, quick reaction decisions aren't always the best. Gut reactions aren't always the best. Um, decisions made when you're under a lot of stress and feeling a lot of pressure aren't the best. Going out and selling when you know that you're not going to be able to make payroll the next month under all that pressure is not a good place to sell. People can sense it. So take a step back, take a deep breath, and anytime you feel pressure in any kind of decision, take a deep breath, step back, think about it, take a long view. What do you want out of this? What's the dream? What's the passion? What are we trying to get out of this? Make the decision based on that. Get as accurate as amount of data as you can, as much data as you possibly can, and make the decision on that. Not how you're feeling, not if you feel rushed, none of those things. There's always a little more time than you think there is, and there's always advantages to taking the long view. Okay. So, assignment, homework time. Um, next time you feel stressed or pressure or pushed into making some kind of quick decision, don't, okay? Step back, see if you can picture, take a long view. Think about it for a minute. See if you can get on and do a little research. Find some more data out. Make sure that you are reacting to the facts and that you are doing what's best um, for the long term of, of your little company, of your dream, of your business. It will help, it will definitely help you. So hopefully that's helpful to some folks out there. Please remember always, I, I mean, I know I say this a lot, entrepreneurs change the world, and they do, we do. We make a big difference on this earth. There's so much good going on. If you haven't read the book factfully, take a read, take a, it's a quick read. It's really cool. Just goes through and discusses how good things are going in the world today, how, and it's really, I always talk about um, how entrepreneurship is changing the world because it is all these new ideas. It is the new technology. It is the ability we have to be places in a short amount of time, to move large amounts of product, to grow wonderfully, wonderful products um, more efficiently, um, to find water, to find new fuel sources, solar. I mean, all of it is so wonderful and it's driven by entrepreneurship. It's driven by problem solvers who are willing to take risks and solve problems. And then these, these um, solutions change the world. We've taken poverty from 85% in the 1800s down to 9% worldwide. You're not gonna hear that in the media. Um, that's not what sells papers, but that's what's going on. And it has to do with so much of what we entrepreneurs are a part of. So be proud of what you do, have a dream, have a passion, and let's figure out how to turn that into a business. Until next time, this is Aaron Stewart saying thank you from Buddy, who likes to spill the beans and blow my topics up. Have a great day. We'll see ya. Bye.